You are listening to the Maniverse Podcast with your host, Tom Traplin. This is session number 58. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Maniverse Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Traplin, and this is the podcast where we talk about building successful and profitable game businesses. Typically, that means interviews with some of the most successful local game store owners in North America. Sometimes that means in-depth discussions of the strategies and tools used to build them, and sometimes, like in today's episode, we're going to talk about the publishing side of the industry and bringing a new game to the market. In this case, it's even more meta. We're talking about the business behind a card game about business. Today, the subject is Megacorp, and in Megacorp, business is war. Today, my guest is Mark Coe. Megacorp was created and designed by Mark G. Coe, a serial tech founder with a lifelong love of card games and business. Growing up in Singapore, Southeast Asia, Mark discovered tabletop games at an early age of eight, beginning, beginning with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Good times. He wished to become a science fiction writer, but lamented a huge disadvantage being born in an environment that neither the English medium nor the genre would create a success. He subsequently gained a sideline as a ghostwriter for a decade, and 20 years later, Megacorp was born. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm doing very good. It's uh, morning where we're at right now, so I think about nearly 12 hours away from the time zone. Mm-hmm. Are you having a good day so far? Yeah, pretty much. Cool. <laughs> you excited to talk about your, uh, your venture? Yes, of course, anytime. Cool, so let's talk about it. So how did Megacorp come to be, and uh, how is it different from other CCGs on the market? Wow, super double-barreled question. Okay, the first part being is that uh, initially Megacorp was uh, not a game. The funny thing is that uh, Megacorp was actually uh, began life as one of three narratives which actually created uh, as a hobby. So um, there are three stories in the larger universe. One is called Silent War, based in 2030s, about basically a dystopian version of Southeast Asia. Uh, then there's Year 10,000, which of course is Megacorp, where humanity has colonized the stars and uh, capitalism has basically gone out of control. And of course, there is a third storyline, which is more superheroic, called Tsar. And the thing is that uh, initially, we, I did this as a gag. The Megacorp was uh, my, my, my effort in trying to make a board game for real-life tech founders to basically um, gauge how good they are at actually doing business. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I would like to think that I have a pretty good grip of mathematics. So the thing is that I tried to create something relatively balanced, symmetrical, and, uh, you know, it, it would make, you know, a, a great experience for like uh, four to like nine co-founders to basically sit around and, and game. Because, I mean, I couldn't get them into, uh, I couldn't get them into Dungeons and Dragons. It's too heavy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, seriously, especially after, I mean, they tried to dumb it down in fourth edition. It's not like I haven't been keeping up with what's been going on. Fifth edition is disappointing, but uh, I never made the transition from 3.5 to Pathfinder. So, uh, so anyway, back to it. And uh, if you try to play things like uh, the World of Darkness games, White Wolf, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, you know, that's pretty fun. Uh, but you know, if you try to play that in an office, everybody's going to think you're weird. And uh, of course, we had our share of casual games. Uh, even even in, in, in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, where some of my team members are, uh, we, we try to play things like Saboteur. We try to play things such as, uh, oh, recently, Exploding Cats. But you see, that, that only keeps you engaged for let's say, maybe at most an hour. So mm -hmm. the problem is that uh, I wanted to find a way to actually uh, get people to actually relate the game to their behaviors in real life business. 
So I couldn't find a solution in the market. Believe me, I also tried Netrunner. There's so many comparisons that have been made between Megacorp and Netrunner. Netrunner doesn't own the science fiction genre or cyberpunk genre, at least. Uh, and uh, when <laughs> I've been asked a lot of questions uh, on uh, other interviews about this, I, I, I actually spring counter questions like, are you aware of these other Asian games? And they draw a blank. It's pretty amazing. The West doesn't know what's going on in the East, but the East is aware of what's going on in the West. So um, anyway, so now to, to answer your second question is, what is the main differences between Megacorp and the other games in the market? Uh, let's, let's begin by talking about it mechanically. Um, what, what I did as a designer in the game is that uh, the game pieces in most uh, board games, let's talk about board games first before I talk about card games, okay? In, in board games, basically, you see a high degree of interaction, but the problem is that ownership of pieces don't actually change as often as they should. This is my, my, in, my, in my own personal opinion, I believe that this doesn't simulate a business environment close enough. So the thing is that um, I, I wanted to actually see pieces of one player going to pieces, uh, ownership of another player. Uh, I, then you also needed to simulate basically uh, a player expanding his business network, his asset base, his contacts, his employees. Um, and basically uh, the, the way to do this is by placing the game pieces like adjacent to each other. Now the correct English term for it is orthogonally adjacent, meaning they have mm -hmm. to be up, down, left and right of each other. Um, the reason why we did this as opposed to um, having it like a, in a single, like a radius of a card is because, uh, okay, I don't want to get into the math. That's going to be very boring. Basically, it, it, <laughs> it, it, affects, it affects the gameplay adversely. So the, the next thing is that now we talk about card games, right? Now, the problem with card games I discovered is that, uh, especially from playing Magic the Gathering, as you can tell, I play quite a few games. Uh, the, the meta game actually gets uh, annoying because what happens is that if the game designers don't uh, actually have enough foresight, especially when you're developing multiple sets and you get into like your third or your fourth set, uh, what happens is that uh, you're going to get a dominant deck type. I mean, with Magic, you've seen fairies dominate, and now you see Eldrazi is also pretty annoying. Uh, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's a bad experience for new players that just pick up the game because then you're fighting the same guy with the same creatures, with the same spells, right? Yeah, but, it uh, tends to get pretty repetitive. Correct. And in Megacorp's case, I, I solved this basically by making the discard pile, otherwise known as the open market pile, accessible to all players. Essentially, it allows you to play with your opponent's deck. So if he was to actually deploy, uh, we use the word deploy because it is uh, uh, legally distinct from put into play or cast, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, when, when you basically deploy an asset that uh, is relatively powerful, you, you basically have a first turn advantage to use it. And that's why uh, in our game, we don't actually have uh, a delay before you can actually interact and use that uh, card's abilities. Like for example, attack or to use abilities that require to engage, which is turn it upside down. We, we can't turn the cards 90 degrees because firstly, the cards are next to each other and turning them sideways is going to, is going to basically disrupt them. It's going to make it look ugly because, you know, uh, every, everything is laid out in a square grid. So yeah, unless your cards were square cards, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and that's also the reason why we actually had square corners on the cards because when we first uh, got it out uh, in a Chinese version, I mean, uh, people were saying that, hey, you know, I mean, I like my cards to be all flush with each other. So we were pretty surprised when Western players started feeding back that... Uh, oh, you need round corners on these things. They, they preserve the secondary market value. Be like, we're going to have secondary market value, huh? Okay, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're going to fix that. So no problem. That means uh, the first edition of the cards still have square corners. People told me just to 
just just leave them and not not recall the stock because they might actually gain secondary market value as they are kind of misprinted in a way. So yeah, no, kind if, of like the way alpha and beta are for magic. Right, well, it is an alpha, print. and I am a tech entrepreneur at heart. So the thing is that uh, you know we it, it's like the first iteration of the product, and we make mistakes, and we are we are brave enough to to put errata out, ban cards, restrict cards, whatever, a- anything that basically makes the play experience more balanced. So anyway, going back to that, uh, what makes it different? Element uh, mm-hmm. playing with your opponent's deck. We mentioned that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, buying your opponent's card pieces. We also mentioned that already. Oh, uh, I forgot to mention uh, like biddings to start first. Like uh, typically, the mechanism for players like say start first is just a random, uh, a, a random dice roll or random number generator, or basically even playing scissors paper stones. That's what they do in uh, <laughs> some parts of Indonesia, by the way, because they don't have dice. Hmm. So okay, um, we how do I put it? We decided basically that uh, like in real life business, right? If you want to go first, you pay. So we made it a bid. So two players basically hide a dice or hide a piece of paper and, and indicate how much money they would like to pay to start first. And the guy that pays the most amount of money gets to start first. If it's a multiplayer game, uh, basically, uh, that might not necessarily be fair and complicated. So we might actually have to do a dice roll for multiplayer. We're, we're still on the fence for that one, officially. But uh, as far as uh, canon goes, uh, the person who bids the most gets paid. The person who didn't bid the most doesn't get to pay. The other people don't get to pay. As a result, right, this eliminates a lot of play- uh, problems in the game because uh, it prevents first-turn kills, even though the game initially was designed to have first-turn kills. Don't get me wrong. Um, I can talk... Interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Th- there's, a reason, there's a reason why we did that. It's because uh, the game is so not random that we discovered that if a player was, uh, I don't want to say intellectually impaired, uh, makes bad decisions. Sure. Um, they would generally suck at the game. We discovered that we, we, we didn't want to create an IQ test. I mean, that was not my intention. I want to sit down, drink my Tsingtao beer, and play with four friends and kick their asses and know that, hey, I'm actually a better business guy than you guys. But then we discovered that the game wasn't as random as intended, actually. The only random thing about the game was the card draw and the initial draw. And it made the probability calculation easier, but uh, it, it made players which were generally bad at playing, well, you know, suffer. So we, we had to include a way that people could win by fluke. So yeah, so, so we actually had certain, uh, certain things built in so that we could see these uh, random mishaps happen. Okay, I think I've you, gone on a bit longer. So let me that sounds really cool. So you actually introduced more variants into the game rather than less. Yes, that's right. As in, there's actually very, very little random elements in the game. That I can assure you. It's, uh, in fact, uh, it might have been a mistake initially because, uh, uh, I mean, I seriously got into the um, actual grinding of the uh, mechanics maybe about in 2013. But the, uh, the, the game story and everything was, was all written in 2006. But we only started discovering problems like these in 2014 or so. Fascinating. So what was the process of developing the game like? How long have you been working on it? Okay. Uh, basically, the, the story I've written more than 10 years ago. Uh, it was a bit of a passion project. Uh, Megacorp was actually... Uh, a, a, it, it wasn't the first story I wrote. The first story I wrote was actually Silent War. Uh, I don't want to go into that. It's going to take another half an hour of your time. Uh, yeah, it's um, well. Ba- the premise is that uh, governments are gone, corporations have taken over. Then I just realized something: in nine thousand or eight thousand years, we might we might completely not even recognize the nature of a corporation. So I had to introduce a narrative element to make it the same, right? Mm-hmm. So we we all know something: humans are stupid. We tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. So I kind of reset humanity by having. 
the story takes place on a colony of humanity that doesn't know they are a colony. So they got, they got populated by an ark ship. Um, we screwed up the planet in year 2300. Uh, we created AIs. AIs thought we are stupid. They, had a, they basically had a big decision. Decision number one, kill all humans. Okay, because you know, we're, we're harmful. And uh, you know, what would you do to, to a bunch of cockroaches in your kitchen? You would step on them, right? You would open the door and let them out, right? Yeah. So yeah, the super intelligent uh, post-singularity AIs would probably mm-hmm. go, yeah, guys, come on. We, we have three decisions. One, we kill them all. Two, we leave them and go far, far away. And three, oh, you poor endangered species, my bleeding heart. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll us to uh, take care of you. So uh, at the risk of revealing spoilers prior to the booster release, I'm just going to let you in on this. One of the AIs decided to stay behind. The rest thought she was kind of stupid. So the rest basically gave her two rules. Protocol number one, do not invent time travel. If you ever do that, we're going to come back and we're going to wipe out everything. We're going to kill all your pets and we're going to punish you really severely. And rule number two, you cannot interfere with human free will. For instance, only a human hand can take a human life. As a result, this last AI, her name is Janicia. She's the youngest and you can say the least intelligent of all the AIs that emerged from the Singularity event. So she basically gave humanity a gift, which is the gift of interstellar travel. Because humans, they was, we were still like 500 years away from it. And by the time we figured it out, we would be dead already. So humanity created 23 Genesis arcs and uh, shipped themselves off to 23 potential planets. One of these planets was called P411, otherwise known as Gaia. And uh, this is where the story takes place. Now, the crew of the ship, they were the brightest and the best. They, the, the captain was basically a military guy. You, you would basically have some brilliant academic people. You would have geologists, biologists, doctors, engineers. And they all got together on the ship and went, hey, Earth is really far away. And the rich guys don't care about us anymore. They just wanted us off the planet. So, you know, they could depopulate the planet and create more jobs and make more money. Um, why don't we just reset humanity? And that's what they did. They landed on the planet and reset humanity pretty much into the Bronze Age and made themselves gods because they could engineer themselves to be immortal, which is completely against what they were supposed to do in the first place. So humanity rebooted and uh, in less than 1,900 or so years, it's uh, pretty much in year 1920, uh, they started a world war, which is not very surprising if you look at our own history, right? And uh, Yep. Predictable. Yeah, one side invented the bomb, surprise, surprise, and dropped the bomb on the other side. And uh, the other side had 350,000 civilian deaths. And he was praying to whatever would listen to him. Now, if you're thinking that Janisha would hear his prayer and intervene, she can't. Because, um, firstly, that's not reflective of the view of everybody on that planet. And secondly, the majority of humans on Earth, the original Earth, decided, hey, let's not interfere with these guys. And Janisha has to go with the flow because, you know, human free will, remember? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the old humans basically decided, to, one of them decided to intervene at this point. He said, hey, marry your son, my, uh, your son, no, sorry, my son to your daughter and he'll inherit your entire empire. And so the Eastern side, which is the guys that got bombed, well, they became incarnate, which is one of the three factions featured in Megacorp. And the other side became Corp, which is the other major faction. And uh, the war escalated. Then, of course, everything stopped when Janisha arrived and basically said, guys, you're being stupid. Um, let's sign this piece of paper called the Ahu Accord. And this will be the very first planet in human history which has been colonized by two major factions at the same time. 
and the player takes the role of uh, one of these entrepreneurs that's going into this no man's land, this central continent, which is a special economic zone. So, I mean, being, being an Asian guy, I can relate to the definition of a special economic zone. Just look at Hong Kong. Okay? Mm -hmm. Most uh, people from US and Canada is like special economic zone. What? So they don't understand. It's not a concept. term that's uh, usually thrown around around here. Yeah, it's not thrown around right there. So basically it means that it is, um, well, in this case, in Megacorp, it is really not governed by humans. It's governed by Janisha. And Janisha said, basically, hey, guys, it, it, it's free for all. It's like the Wild West. You know, um, you don't have uh, countries. You have civil enterprises, meaning that imagine if the Canada privatized and became Canada Incorporated. That's what a civil enterprise would be like. It would be a country-scale mega corporation. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. And... Um, Imagine entire departments of government completely outsourced. Like your entire police department is an independent enforcement agency with their own guns, their own military technology, their, their own like uh, code of ethics, uh, their own rules of engagement, everything. So, so that's what uh, that, that, that universe looks like. And that's actually what's happening in the, uh, the canon storyline here. So uh, yeah, I think I answered your question a little bit too well. So let me, let me give it back to you. That was extremely in-depth. I enjoyed that a lot. That was... Like a fantastic story too. I can go even deeper, but it'll take us hours. No, we we'll <laughs> save that for another podcast then. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay, so basically, like the ultimate free market scenario. Everything's yeah, just wild west, like you said. Well, Very there cool. are regulations because uh, each company would have its own rules. Island slash continent, and for example, uh, if you've seen the the products that we have released, we've got three cities kind of detailed right now. The capital of Aohu is uh, New Shanghai. Uh, there is the incarnate uh, stronghold, which is uh, Bayan, which is uh, actually, you know, supposed to be this eco paradise, you know, skyscrapers made out of trees, you know, like people riding horses that don't poop everywhere, kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> a bit of Garden of Eden kind of feel. And cool. uh, of course, you have a super duper religious sanctuary called uh, Hiroshalem. So um, we're, we're trying to basically slowly introduce uh, players and readers. Actually, the truth is I'm really just trying to tell a story. The game, the game happened as a side effect. But uh, maybe, maybe um, God smiled when I was born because I'm able to handle the mathematics and the plot at the same time. But it does drive me kind of insane. And I need lots of beer. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds... There's a lot, lot to be said there. So you've got this really in-depth story. And then you've also got this uh, well, a really in-depth game. And just to give the listeners a, a little bit of a taste, there's a, a quote that I wanted to pull out because it's on your Kickstarter campaign page. And it's... It's interesting. It's just, to quote, the mathematical basis for the card distribution in the starter decks was calculated via multivariate hypogeometric distribution to ensure balance using the variables of valuation, trait strength, and secondary costs. Yeah, so if I can answer that in plain English, uh, we basically use an optimization algorithm, which I actually wrote, uh, you know, that we, we had for one of our startups. I actually have a technology startup on the side that matches people to jobs and uh, there's no easy way to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, have to, we have to balance the variables basically of, uh, uh, you know, how much they want to be paid, what time they want to work. Uh, uh, basically, each person's uh, requirements for jobs are different because if you let candidates design jobs, right, then employers going to go, no, I need this guy for nine hours. I, I don't need a guy that just wants to work for two hours, right? Yeah. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background on this, uh, we, we started basically by doing something that a lot of people hate to do. Uh, I was in the... Uh, I, I was in the scene of trying to find volunteers for disaster relief. And uh, can you remember the super typhoon Haiyan that hit the uh, Philippines in uh, about 2013? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was a pretty tragic situation. And the problem is that when you get volunteers to come and help, um, you're faced with a bunch of challenges. Like, uh, for instance, 
nobody wants to help. Uh, and those people that do, right, um, they show up and go, hey, Mark, I, I only want to work for three days. I said, no, but the mission is five days long. We need you here for five days. And the guy goes, no, man, I'm a volunteer, man. I mean, you can't really tell this guy what to do because he's volunteering his free time and it's not being paid. So it's like, shit, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And yeah. the other problem is that uh, when they show up, right, I mean, do you teach? Uh, can you cook? Uh, are you able to speak the? Are you able to speak Tagalog? Can you pick up heavy stuff? Are you strong? You know stuff like that. They don't exactly fill out this long, like you know, application form because you know if we made them fill out a long application form, they won't volunteer. So it was very frustrating for us. Mm -hmm. So we needed we needed to put this into the into the situation. Then it got even worse when we discovered that people didn't want to work in certain areas. Like for example, we we had a we had this volunteer basically say that uh, I'm a girl. Um, there's no street lights because the electricity is out. I, I don't want to go over to this part because I might get raped. Oh, I mean, it's fair. It's valid. You know, it's scary. And, yeah, uh, fair concern. And, and, and that means I needed to introduce an element of like locality to this equation. So we couldn't solve this problem by Microsoft Excel. So I, I got together with this uh, brilliant guy. His name is Kenneth Simyong Kang. And uh, he's my co-founder in Temploy. Uh, he, he basically worked out a way that we could optimize people exactly like put every all the data in and you'll actually pump out the right person at the right place at the right time to volunteer for the right segment and then Very we cool. discovered that oh shit we invented something that can only be used during a disaster and that, that's horrible so we converted it to, to part-time jobs <laughs> and i realized that holy shit i mean this algorithm it actually works for a lot of other things what about a card game haha -ha. <laughs> so it's more than that. It's more than that. We're using more than just a simple optimization algorithm. In fact, uh, we've got lots of. Uh, I, I'm not going to burn too much time here. I'm just going to say. I'm just going to credit some people that need to be credited. Like for example, I have a genius friend. His name is uh, Nikita Osipov, all the way from Moscow, Russia, and uh, he's uh, basically he, he's a co-founder of another startup I'm involved in, which is uh, Safe Chats, a secure communication startup. And uh, you know that encryption algorithms can be very crazy hard to do. So without going too much behind the curtain, uh, I, I have uh, access to a bunch of guys to help me out. I did figure out basically how the, uh, the meta works in some other games. And uh, we, we created uh, something which is not a bell curve. Like we wanted players to actually have the majority of their decision making rely on the first two turns of the game. So that's one thing that you realize is very different from the other trading card games. In a very long-winded way, I did answer your initial question of how is this different. Uh, in, in like, for example, Magic the Gathering, the variables start to get more complex once you have five lands down. You get a five drop, things start to go really weird, right? Mm -hmm. at, at this point, you're, you're walking into primeval titan territory already. And uh, anything beyond that, you're in Eldrazi territory and just whoever gets the biggest body wins generally, right? Sure. And we know game, game over is 15 mana because that's Emrakul mana. So um, for, for us, right, you notice that uh, the, card, the initial card draw of the game is five cards. The reason why I did that on purpose is because the probabilities became so difficult to calculate, I needed to base it on something which already existed in the market. Now, if you're thinking like Vanguard or, you know, or, or Magic or you know, one of the other TCGs out there, uh, the answer is I based it on Texas Hold'em Poker because mm -hmm. they've already calculated their probabilities for more than 20 years. So I had that data pool to draw from. So the thing is that you notice that the resource deck is 20 cards minimum and the main deck is 40 cards minimum. Initially, when we were testing it out, we made the main deck 54 cards. And now 
you probably understand why. <laughs> because we needed to find an average between 40 cards and 60 cards in which people are going to main deck, right? And anything beyond 60 cards, the deck is extremely inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing is that uh, we broke the mold because uh, I, I got pretty frustrated because Wizards of the Coast initially, I mean, I really respect Richard Garfield as a mathematician. He figured out that if anybody were to put more than four cards of the same into the main deck, the, uh, the computations of, uh, of consistency, you know, really skew towards somebody who would basically load his deck with lightning bolts, for example. Yes. But I realized, what if there were a distinction between the cards which were harmful to put multiple copies of? I mean... If I were to put 20 Onitoppers into my deck, I, I could probably create some insane combo and just win the game very consistently and the meta is going to suck, right? However, what if I made resource cards, cards that give me money, cards that, you know, defend, cards that basically let me search for other stuff. Maybe searching is a bad idea. We haven't done that yet, by the way. Um, but uh, we, we basically made the cards that uh, gave trade resources or money uh, and the thing is that if uh, players are expecting that uh, the resource cards are just going to be customers and consumers and boring buildings, they are so wrong. Uh, the reason why we didn't do this in the starter decks is because I haven't completed uh, really advanced testing for the, the, the ones we're going to release in the boosters. You notice that uh, there's very little terrain. There's like no plains and hills and rivers and lakes, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to happen in the boosters because we figured out how terrain works. So I'm not going to spoil it here, but uh, maybe you know, I, I want to have a long-term relationship with this Thomas Traplin guy. So let's save that for another reveal. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah, so uh, we, we've gonna have, we're going to have terrain in there. And uh, we, we even have... Um, uh, all right, i got to stop myself. I'm going to basically give away too many things. No, we don't want to go into spoiler territory. Yeah, we don't want to go into spoiler Just territory. Just enough to wet the appetite. There's lots of stuff happening with the resource deck and you can have like as many as 20 of the same cards if you like. So that actually gives a, we, we figured out there's an, another accidental side effect. It actually affects the secondary market too. If you can put legally, put like, you know, more than four copies of something into your deck, the value of that card sheet goes up because you have to get more of them. And we realize players like that. So great. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. I mean, imagine you can put more than four dual lands into your main deck of magic. You know, that, 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 would, that would really be something. And the reason why you can't, of course, is because, you know, it does uh, deform the game. But in this case, it wouldn't. Yeah, if you remove the disadvantage of the game becoming, you know, boring or unfun because the repetition is, you know, you make that combo deck that always goes off turn one and the game's kind of pointless. Yeah, if you can take away that and still maintain the, the requirement of having up to 10 or 20 or whatever the resource happens to be. I can see how that would really drive up demand for maybe a particular subset of cards. Yeah, so, I know. And players tend to get upset when they crack packs and they're like, oh, God, it's another basic land, you know? <laughs> the yeah. thing is that, yeah, we, yeah. we, we actually uh, we actually put three resources into the uh, booster packs. That, well, that one I can tell you. Ooh. Okay, so like... Yeah, but they're, they're not like just land, you see? <laughs> yeah, they're a little more interesting than just a, an island or a, a forest, right? Well, I can tell you a vanilla card, which is quite harmless. I mean, uh, besides regular consumers, right now in the game, uh, we've got like uh, selfish consumers, we've got like impulsive consumers, uh, you know, all, all these different consumers represent customers and uh, they're slightly different stats. One which is slightly like one point of IQ and zero everything else. Uh, another one which basically has one point of body quotient and zero everything else. They're, bas they're basically your, your stock standard like mana dorm. 
platforms, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the the ones that we're going to introduce now, I mean, we're going to have something higher level, like a rock star, like a rock star, like an internet celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody like that would generate hell more money and he would have like slightly more EQ than normal because obviously the guy can communicate, otherwise he won't be popular. And uh, we, we've got like a slightly higher tier of consumers, but of course the, the drawback is that they cost a little bit more to put into the into the network. Very cool. So I wanted to talk about that. You've there's just the starter decks, correct? Like you're right, working on the boosters. No, no, decks. yeah, they're not released yet. <clears throat> so is the game? Well, the starter decks are in the market right now. They, they, we're currently talking to uh, a few distributors. In fact, uh, next week I'm going to be in Nuremberg for the Spielwaren Messe uh, toy fair in Germany, mm -hmm. and uh, we already have a Canadian uh, distributor interested in the, you know, in, in MegaCorp in Canada. So I mean, I don't know what's going to be the outcome. Uh, we can't tell you who they are either, but. Uh, that, that conversation is beginning. So, I mean, it might be sooner than you think. And we actually have the starters ready to go. It's just the boosters that have to wait till Chinese New Year's over because the factories are closed. Gotcha. Yeah, that was the uh, the question that I was going to ask is that uh, your campaign ended with uh, just the starters. So the boosters weren't in the works yet, at least as far as I saw. So is the game the, like you mentioned, Netrunner originally, which is an LCG, not a collectible card game like Magic, right? It's a little bit of a different model. So how is the, uh, how are the boosters going to impact the, the sale of the game? How is that going to change the way things work? Ah, okay. So allow me to address that in three separate points. Number one, uh, how is it going to impact the game? In fact, a lot of people don't realize that we designed the starters and the boosters together. They were not designed in a vacuum. In fact, uh, to make it even more clear to you, I designed the first five sets together. In fact, mm. we already got up to set five. Um, you see, it's not the designing that takes time. It's the balancing that's, that takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, that's, that's part number one. Uh, number two, the boosters are meant for players to further customize the, uh, the, the cards in the starter decks. But you see, the way an LCG works is that you got a base set of everything like uh, Game of Thrones, LCG, uh, like uh, even Warhammer 40k, you get a bunch of cards and then you've got additional like data packs or add-ons expansions to basically make the experience a bit deeper, introduce new factions and stuff like that. That's not exactly how it works in Megacorp because um, the, it's not an add-on. You can completely swap out all the cards from the starter decks and just use booster cards to play the game as well. Because the, the reason why we actually wanted to do the boosters like a quarter, like three months later, is because uh, we were scared we're introducing too many concepts at one time. Like, for example, uh, when we did our initial playtest, I mean, the very first place we started testing uh, was Indonesia. And uh, in, in Jakarta, we, we have a very good friend. A shout out to this guy called uh, Mr. Ipunk. He's uh, one of the top TCG players in, uh, in that entire country of 300 million people, by the way. Um, he, uh, he actually was one of the first people to try out the game alongside our internal testing team and of course people in uh, Singapore. Um, what we figured out is that uh, we've got three core mechanics like we have a mechanic called Dead Drop which allows player to, when you play this character, immediately search your deck for something that costs less than this number. For example, Dead Drop 2, you search your deck for an equipment with a valuation 2 or less and put it into play directly as free. See, most other games, you reveal that card, put it into your hand, right? Mm -hmm. And we figured out that, you know, what the hell? Why don't we just let them have a direct card advantage? Because if you put it into your hand, the opponent can react to it. Now, we didn't want the opponent to actually have any reaction time. We wanted that asset like an M16 or, or a, a sales contract or, you know, something to basically come straight into play under control of, of that player's network. So, so that's one of the mechanics that player, players, when they saw it, they went, ooh, wow, this is cool. 
And it, in fact, the cards with dead drop will probably gain value over time because they can dead drop anything with that cost or less, right? So mm. in future expansions, when I introduce new equipment like in the boosters, you're going to have new stuff to pull out of your deck, right? For sure. And, and it's reachable. I see you don't need to top deck the card. You, you basically can put down the character and then decide that, oh, today I want him to wear red. Today I want him to wear green. And uh, you can kit out your characters that way. Similarly, the, the other faction has an equivalent mechanic called mutation that pulls out DNA modifications. You know, mm-hmm. so that, that, that actually, that's one of the mechanics. But problem is that we actually had six of these mechanics and uh, it was too much. Uh, we, we figured out that, you know, we, we didn't want to overwhelm players. Like um, some people questioned me about the set design. You know, why are you introducing so many keywords? Why, why doesn't it have like super vanilla cards that are just like a, a, a two, 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 like, you know, human like garbage collector or something that doesn't do anything. I said that, you know what, A, that's a waste of artwork and B, uh, when we spoke to players, like actual competitive players, firstly, competitive players drive the game. Even though casual players foot most of the bills, competitive players are the ones that push the game forward. And I, I wanted them to actually feel a sense of belonging to this game. And uh, the next thing is that we didn't want to set a creative game which began at set zero. You know, I didn't want to have like uh, everything vanilla and like super dumbed down rules going to Toys R Us and Target. No, no, no. That wasn't the approach. We want to go straight into the, into the LGS. We wanted to help the LGS become more profitable. We wanted to have a really fiercely loyal player base. And we wanted the set start at essentially what is set three of a card game. So you know how like uh, some card games try to introduce like beginner level and expert level decks, right? I mean, it was a complete wa- and utter waste of time. And they discovered this, you know, later on, like 10 years down the road that it, it didn't matter because the fact is that um, it doesn't have enough depth so we created essentially what is a third set game in the very first set of the game. And the booster basically takes it to the next level because of uh, there, there are different uh, interactions that exist in the boosters. And of course, it's going to get even more complicated when it reaches the second set. But I mean, it's good complicated, not bad complicated. We, we didn't want to create like five abilities in a car. That's just too much. For sure. You want to ease people into it. Yeah. Yeah, so the it's, it's interesting. So how are you going to uh, keep the balance up like you mentioned the uh the fact that the uh, the cards have the mechanic the dead drop mechanic where you can search up for something and put it directly into play and as you release new sets it'll constantly add new cards to that uh, potential pool of fetchable things correct right so like that's in a way that is kind of uh like if we are comparing this to magic as this kind of like the, the ongoing metaphor it's a uh, that's a difficulty that they always have to face right like the more card sets that are added to the card pool the more possible interactions that they didn't see happening were going to come up like that's kind of the reason why uh things like splinter twin and other you know potentially game breaking or uh format ruining combos arise right i realized that magic seems to design sets uh i mean i mean please i don't want to offend some almighty guy like mark grosswater who i really respect i mean uh, they, 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 they need to decide, design sets like in block. They, they think in blocks, I think. Yes. Because of the way that the cycles work, uh, I, I don't think it's not feasible for them to look at 20 years of magic and go, yeah, this card is not balanced because that's going to take too long for development. Um, I'm using machine learning. So the advantage I have is I, I actually did this from the very start. So I actually have software in place that tells me something's broken. So I actually have a machine testing component and then a human testing component. And of course, uh, I mean, the most common sense thing to me is that we have the ultimate testing resource of all. Talk to your players. I, I don't understand why people don't do that more often. 
Cool. That, mean, make, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> Sounds like you yeah, have there, uh, there's certain Japanese card games which I will not name, uh, but they, you know, they have this approach that you know the designer is always right. I super disagree with this. Maybe, maybe it's because uh, I grew up in an environment where democracy is really scarce, and we kind of crave it. You know, we're like, "Come on, guys, what do you think? Tell me what you think. I want to know what you think. You don't like something? Wow, I like to hear that you don't like something." Meanwhile, I mean, uh, some people that actually get into the design of game, game, game designing business, they can't, they can't handle criticism. They, they freak out. So um, as a result, they, they either grossly overcompensate, which results in another balancing problem. Yep, go the other or, way. Yeah, that's right. They, they take it too far. Like, for example, uh, you know, like, oh, oh like, uh, remember Batterskull? Mm, oh, yeah, Batterskull, yes. Yeah, I remember that. So uh, that, that's an example of... Uh, you know, I mean, you, you could have done it another way. You could have introduced, uh, for example, in the next set, like I think, I think they didn't spot the problem. And I remember what block that was. That, it wasn't that the, the uh, jog my memory here, it was the one with the Phyrexians, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. That, it was that block. And the thing is that I remember it was uh, the flavor of the day was to attach uh, zero casting cost stuff to some big battering ram and just hit your opponent repeatedly. <laughs> and... Uh, Maybe they could have found something, something that could have uh, made that combo invalid by just uh, you know dealing with the zero cost rather than dealing with the battle skull. I mean that, that's maybe that's my difference in uh, game design approach. But I, I believe problems should be solved by the uh, development team before it goes into testing, and that way it's a better experience for everybody. True, I would I definitely agree with that. And then the uh, the recent event of how uh, Wizards had to ban some cards from standard, which is something that they haven't done in I think five or six years since uh, Stoneforge Mystic and the whole batter skull that we were just talking about. So like they, uh, yeah, they recently had to step in and fix something that they'd recently printed, which was Smuggler's Copter in like the set that was just before the one that just became released. Oh, the vehicles, right? Yeah, so they, they pushed this one card, Smuggler's Copter, so far that it would became ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It was, it was uh, by far the most common card to face if you were a competitive Magic player playing standard because it was a two mana artifact, so everyone could play it. So they basically, they had to ban that a couple of weeks ago because the format became stale and repetitive. And that was a, a problem that they should have, well, ideally that's a problem that they should have identified, you know, maybe like a year ago when they were doing the Future Future League and they're trying to predict what the standard format was gonna be like. So yeah, I do, I definitely agree that the developers and designers should head oh, off those I kinds of problems, but it's, it's tough because they also have to push like at least with wizards they have to push certain cards to kind of make the sets appealing right so they have, yeah. they walk a fine line of trying to make cards interesting and fun and powerful but not so powerful that it breaks the game yes well um i really respect the people at wizards actually uh but the okay they're facing a different challenge because you see they have so many people in the machine they got so many developers so the problem is that we don't exactly have a hive mind I mean, uh, how I communicate with my team is that uh, we use Slack and Asana and all these, like, basically I'm running it like a startup. It's quite fun, actually. And uh, the thing is that I, I want to rephrase myself. I, I didn't want to say that their set design was bad, but I might be saying basically that uh, perhaps they are, they're designing in silos, perhaps. They're, they're maybe not talking to each other 100%. So in, in our case, when we design cards, right, we actually put it into this Slack channel and go, guys, what do you think about this? And then we will try to imagine scenarios where different cards that we already made before interact with that card. Now, the good thing is that uh, one, uh, I, I need to sort of clarify what I said before is because the way that Megacorp's core rules are designed, 
certain things don't break. Like for example, if you had a smuggler's copter and you were playing Megacorp, right? Mm -hmm. If you attacked on the wrong turn, your opponent could buy your smuggler's copter the next turn and hit you back with it. Mm -hmm. Or if, if it blew up, your opponent could buy it from your open market power and hit you back. That means I could actually play with your expensive card, even though my deck didn't actually have that card to begin with. So that's a fundamental thing that I think wizards can't do without redesigning magic. I mean, I designed Megacorp from the ground up to actually deal with meta problems like this. Mm -hmm. So having a crazy like uh, monster like on the table, like a bomb, right? I mean, this card is going to screw you up if it hits you, right? I mean, you know, there, there are many, many solutions. There, there are many ways out of it. So the thing is that it, it, it sometimes I look at other game designers. Uh, I'm not talking about the big titles. I'm talking about smaller titles now. And they, they're beginning to just find their first steps in the industry. And uh, they, their solution to solving a problem is to just create removal, right? Yes. Yes, and, and I figured out that actually is a bottleneck. Why create a removal bottleneck? So, so in Megacorp, the removal bottleneck does not exist. Everything can attack everything. See, every character, characters can attack, non-characters cannot attack, but characters can attack any other card in play, even events. That means even fast effects can be attacked. As a result, right, you don't need to like load up on hosers in your deck. You can put what you want to put in your deck. It's a more comfortable experience. Yeah, it's like you built in a... Uh like a feedback mechanism to prevent certain things from getting out of hand because it's already fundamental to the mechanics of the game. Yes, it right. took a lot of math, believe me. <laughs> I believe you. That sounds very interesting. Reminded me of a question I wanted to ask. Do you have any advice for people who are, you know, either designing a game themselves and want to, you know, get into the publishing just like you have or if, or if they've got a game and their next move is Kickstarter or something, or going down oh, the typical yes. path. What do you do? Yes. Kickstarter is a great way to begin. In fact, if you are not able to validate your product to the market, uh, don't do it. I mean, that means nobody wants to buy it. I mean, we did it as a Kickstarter because we were really scared that you know people don't want this product. And lo and behold, they did. We've got funded in two weeks. I mean, it didn't go like, like, like super like uh, exploding kittens viral, but that was good enough for me. It was good enough basically to take that first step and go, okay, I'm willing to take this risk. But uh, I mean, uh, uh, like from Southeast Asia, I mean, we didn't have access to Kickstarter until this year. And last year in 2016, did you know that? No. So we, we actually had to run an American Kickstarter campaign. It was really scary for us. I, I had to find a friend that basically had to help me set up the appropriate apparatus, you know, and basically run it through him. And he could have like walked away with the cash, but he didn't, you know? So, I mean, it was really, really scary for us. But I mean, uh, we, we're living in dangerous times here in Southeast Asia anyway. One, one thing that I uh, wanted to tell uh, new designers, because I, I did talk to, uh, I, I'm not a game designer by trade, but I am an entrepreneur by trade. So one or the other thing is that getting feedback is the second thing that you must do all the time. I mean, don't just talk to people that, you can solicit like uh, praise from because that's a common vanity mistake. You go to somebody who goes, oh, this game is great. And then you feel good and then you don't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody that hates you. I mean, shit, talk to your wife. That's the best. I mean, this is a waste <laughs> of your time. You're doing something better. And then voila, you get gold feedback from people. Talk to your parents. I mean, the people who are in your immediate like family circle, I mean, come on, I have two sisters, right? I mean, it's cheesy. I mean, oh, I don't want to talk to my sister. I mean, I know that feeling, right? It's just like, I, you see her like, every week or every day, right? I mean, it's a person you grew up with and you kind of know that a person is going to have these reservations about you. Mm -hmm. But it's the advantage. That person actually understands you like better than most people in your social circle. Go, going after your relatives as a first part of call. And okay, this might be an Asian thing, okay? So parents first, siblings second. Uh, then you go after your friends because your friends are likely to tell you like very encouraging, reinforcing stuff, which is actually not helpful at all. 
I mean, the most brutal thing you can do to yourself is walk into a card shop, you know, and basically start playing your game with people who are like, you know, playing other games sitting in the shop. You might even get chased away by the shop owner, but you know, it's worth a shot, right? Mm-hmm. So guilty, I did that a few times. In fact, uh, when I was over in America, uh, I, I was uh, very privileged to be accepted into a acceleration program by Blue Startups, a uh, top 20 accelerator in Silicon Valley. Um, in Hawaii, I think beginning of 2016. And I took the advantage of uh, being in Hawaii for three weeks to actually drop by a couple of shops. Uh, I mean, uh, Ideal, uh, 808, uh, uh, Dirtle Zone, The Planet, um, just shout out, to, shout out to these guys. Uh, well, basically, I, I showed up at the shops and literally harassed players. I mean, I started, <laughs> yeah, I started playing draft, you know. I started sucking at draft, if <laughs> magic. And I started going, hey guys, what do you think of this game? And then basically they had an after hour session. So, I mean, I, I, did, I did get my fair share of like, oh, I, I hate first-turn kills. I don't like the, 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 the texture of your cards. You know, why is this doing this? You know, and the fact is that these, this feedback re, is really valuable at development stage. And the best part is that when you haven't made the game yet, you can make massive changes. But the problem is that when you're one set in, you can't. So the problem now that we are facing is that now that we've done the starters, right, we, we are locked into certain things. We can't undo certain things. Yeah, so the thing is that for, for new, new developers and new uh, game designers, they have to take that into account. It's, it's, it's the point of no return. The point of no return is set one. Even though we split set one into starters and boosters, uh, once, once we did the starters, that's it. We, we have to work with this infrastructure now. We have to work with this turn sequence. We have to work basically with this priority order. We have to work basically with these trade costs. I cannot introduce a fifth stat right now. I, I can't introduce like a third like cost to the card. I, I can't introduce new interactions unless they were like rule-based interactions, right? So yeah. that is, uh, yeah, uh, another big tip I got for uh, new people trying to design it. And uh, maybe my final tip is, uh, besides the feedback, and of course, Kickstarter is a great platform, uh, don't underestimate the power of uh, mathematics. I mean, uh, I can't emphasize this enough. A lot of people who try to design games don't use science. It's scary. So, I mean, for example, uh, a very basic probability calculation. If I have 40 cards in my deck and I draw five cards at the start of my turn, which is what you, you do in Megacorp, right? Mm-hmm. The probability of you actually drawing two of a kind, three of a kind, it compounds uh, basically probability is one over 40 and then of course one over 39 multiplied by one over 38 and so on and so forth. And that way we can calculate basically how certain combinations exist. Like this is a one turn kill. How often does that happen in turn one? Now, you see, a lot of people don't take it the next step. The next step is what's scary. The next step is trying to calculate what the opponent has. Now that's when it gets really messy. And uh, because in our game, we can buy cards that belong to other players, we actually need to do the probability calculations based on two players, not one. So some people think that it's an easy, it's an easy equation. It's not. So, I mean, um, game theory, it's the one thing that game designers must know. Don't get into the fluffy stuff. I mean, some people like to study, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, psychological models, like, you know, this is a Timmy, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't really help you in game design. It helps you in game marketing. It doesn't yeah, help you in game That's design. a marketing thing, yeah. Yeah, this is the hardcore stuff. Yeah. This is what makes the engine go, you know, go boom. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think uh, I'm talking too much, right? Okay, let me... No, let me that's great. So, where would somebody start? If, they, if you wanted them to pick up a, like a basis in game theory, what would you recommend? Oh, uh, study Monte Carlo simulations. That would be a good starting point. Uh, uh, learning how to do recursions is great. Uh, for example, uh, if, um, I mean, this, this overlaps a little bit with programming. I mean, uh, if they could simply get a, 
uh, I mean, I, you know, uh, let me give you my background. I'll, I'll tell you how I did it. Uh, my background is actually in uh, doing ActionScript 2.0, which is basically a very Java-based language, and uh, doing it on uh, Flash. And Flash is kind of depreciated now because uh, Adobe's not supporting it. Um, but I mean, I, I can easily see them uh, just picking up something uh, like Python, which is quite easy, and uh, just learning how to do simple loops. And the loops is the key. Creating a loop and then creating the probabilities that fit into that loop. Then you get to see where the problems are. You get to see where, where the exceptions are. Then, of course, they can go further and connect it to a database. Database being a set of their cards or game pieces or, or actors in the game. And uh, then you need to bash them together. You need, basically, you need the pieces to talk to each other. And that, that, that is when uh, they're going to need to actually start formally learning how to do those uh, calculations. Cool. Yeah, but learning, learning how, they, uh, how they appear and, and in which order game pieces appear is probably the start. Yeah, the very least. Run some of the numbers, some of the numbers. Maybe not as in-depth as uh, perhaps that you've done it on Megacorp, but yeah, something is better than the, uh, I think the intuition that most people use right now. Okay, so let's, yeah. Yeah, so let's uh, talk about your Kickstarter campaign just a little bit. So were there any like major lessons you learned during the campaign that you, like it was a relatively short one, two weeks you got oh, uh, funded. It was so, very short, yeah. It was in August actually, and we, we did it in conjunction with uh, Gen Con in 2016. I, I gotta give a shout out again. Uh, we had uh, three players slash friends uh, slash volunteers. Uh, their names are Alex Blendon, Nick Blendon, and uh, Josh Langle. This, uh, Alex Blendon is the older of two brothers. Uh, he actually sponsored. He, they, got, they got their money together, and they flew me to America. You know how crazy that is? And everybody squeezed into one hotel room. <laughs> we had people sleeping on the floor. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I remember those days. Yeah, really awesome. I mean, I'm 35, man. I mean, I'm not used to this. <laughs> I, I, I've been in the army. I was pretty surprised that, uh, you know, Amer Americans are really passionate people. I mean, we, we, I mean you, you're Canadian and, I, and, and I'm Chinese and we give them shit all the time, you know. But, I mean, they have a heart, you know. And, and this Hawaiian guy, his name was Michael Basa. He's a really good friend of mine now and he's a very uh, staunch volunteer. You know that uh, he actually gave up, like, you know, his bed so I could sleep in a bed because he thought I needed sleep, you know, to do the demos. It was crazy. Wow. It, was, it was a crazy experience. And, uh, we, we, the, the Kickstarter fired like, uh, within, like, uh, within three days of inception. So, I mean, for Kickstarter, uh, we did it on, I think, August the 7th. And uh, I was in Indianapolis at that time. And, uh, you know, when, when the Kickstarter started, I was actually on the plane and I had to fly 32 hours. So, can you imagine with no internet and not worry and wondering what the hell is going on? You know, are we making money? Did anybody fund us? I didn't know what's going on. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it got so bad. I had to like, excuse me, can I borrow your phone? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like at the airport. Anyway, so um, the, the, the thing, uh, what I learned uh, from Kickstarter is the first three days are really important. You get like, I think 30 to 40% of your sales in the first three days. The second thing I learned is that the big backers are really, really important. The people that are willing to put their neck out and spend like, you know, and buy like, there was a guy that actually bought, uh, how many decks did this guy buy? I think he bought nearly 50 decks. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and uh, they, 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 this guy basically, he just showed up and collected his decks at Gen Con and didn't say a word. He was so mysterious. I mean, people that uh, contribute so much are usually not the most social, I think. The ones that talk a lot, I mean, there are people that put heaps of comments on your Kickstarter comment feed. They spam you on Facebook. They email you lots, but they just buy one deck. You know, they like buy a digital product, you know, and they think they own you. So those are toxic customers. They are toxic backers and you have to be careful with these guys because they give other backers the impression that this guy, you know, did a lot of stuff, but he didn't. So 
you gotta you gotta manage the time spent on the time wasters and pay more attention to the guy that pays fifty buys fifty decks because he's the guy with a play group. He's the guy with a store. Mm -hmm. these, these are the guys that uh, eventually introduced me to distributors. And uh, I mean, it even affected us here in Asia. I mean, we have six countries where they're being distributed in, in Southeast Asia right now. Uh, the, the third and final lesson I learned from uh, Kickstarter is um, we made a mistake on the stretch goals. Um, our stretch goals were too far apart. So we needed to make achievable, really small baby step stretch goals. Like if you have a, I mean, we tried to make it like thousands of dollars apart. Uh, that didn't work. We didn't hit a single stretch goal. So what I would suggest is that putting the stretch goals within 500 or $1,000 increments, that probably worked a little bit better. Because uh, after that, I was observing other, I, I, I had very little basis of comparison because very few people launched the TCG on Kickstarter. I think I'm the only one that I found so far. So uh, please, uh, anybody listening to this, correct me if I'm wrong. I also learned that we aren't the first TCG from uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, Singapore, we had men at CA 2008. Thailand has a commandeer. So I'm sorry to those guys. Uh, I mean, it's great that we discovered there's a lot more people that are in our space. But mm -hmm. I think we're the only one that actually made it on American Kickstarter. I, I, I think that is a fact. I think we're the only one that, uh, that the people on your side of the world are actually aware about. I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're very happy to be in this position. So yeah, that's my, that's my take on the, the Kickstarter thing. It's a great platform, but it shouldn't be the only platform. I mean, at the end of the day, you still need to walk into a store and try to sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, I guess, another, another good topic to cover is that, uh, like, so how do or how have you uh, kind of gotten into stores to sell your game? Like, is Kickstarter the, or was the Kickstarter campaign the only way that you kind of connected with uh, distributors to sell to the retailers and all that? Or did you reach out to distributors directly to say that you've I got did. this thing going on? I did. Um, actually, I, I, I did a few things. First, um, I, of course, went store to store, like to every country I had the chance to visit. And uh, I spoke to the people there. But you see, uh, it, most retailers don't really want to introduce you to their, their distributor. It's fair enough. I mean, it's their privileged context. It's their supplier. Why, why must I introduce you to my supplier? I mean, you, you, you come into my store, you play my players, I want you to deliver value to me. So we also had retailers that wanted to be distributors, but you know, they couldn't get the volume together. And I explained to them, it isn't that I don't want to sell to you is because it's not economical to ship 10 boxes. It doesn't yeah. work that way. Um, how, uh, I realized that uh, even though this was um, a very high attrition rate, you walk into a retail store and uh, they don't give you the time of day. You still need to go through that trial of fire. It, it's painful. I did it a few hundred times. I'm not exaggerating. I really did it a few hundred, a few hundred times. times. Okay. Yes. Um, the other thing that I had to do is to literally spam distributors on their email. Most of them don't reply you. I, I have to tell you that. You get, uh, I even got like emails back going, please stop emailing us. You know? <laughs> no, 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 I did. Seriously. I mean, I, I, I had to go through a lot of hell. I mean, at this point of time, I only have a bunch of volunteers. Uh, my core team, we, we, uh, we had um, Sean, which is my co-founder. He's like our art lead and logistics guy. Um, and of course, uh, you know, right now we have a few more members of the team. We have a guy called Jorge. We have, uh, we have Michael Bassa, who's now on the team. And we also have uh, this guy called Rafael from Philippines, who's actually our community and gameplay guy, who's a really top ace dude. Um, and uh, I mean, imagine that. Uh, there's only like four or five of us. And uh, we tried to change our approach. And we started to approach uh, YouTube celebrities. Dice Tower. Um, uh, right. We also spoke to Alpha Investments. And... Mm -hmm. Voila, that was really something. So, I mean, he responded. I mean, this is one guy out of, I don't know how many we approached by now. I think of like 30 of them. 
you know, we, we try to find people with uh, 10,000 subscribers and above. Hopefully, you know, they would help us with some traction. In fact, I, I even paid for ads on BoardGameGeek. Just to give you an idea, the average salary in Southeast Asia is about 500 USD per month. So that's a monthly salary for us. And that's how much I paid for BoardGameGeek to do advertising. It didn't translate that well. Interesting. Believe it or not. Yeah, it didn't translate that well. People won't like buy or inquire about a game that they just see for the first time on BoardGameGeek. I, I got a feeling now is that it's very socially driven. You need to have social proof. You need to have players telling players to play this game. Mm. So You need to get on tabletop. I think that's the, yeah, uh, you need that's to the get trick. On tabletop. I mean, guys like you, right? I mean, you're, you're probably, there's probably going to be about, I don't know, a few thousand people listening to you right now. And hopefully one of them, you know, gives us a chance. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, and it's, uh, but, but it's funny. I was going to mention that that's how I found you. It, uh, I saw your game on Alpha Investments. And his YouTube channel, that's how I reached out to you. So it's interesting that the uh, like YouTube people who are just kind of making content on the internet are the ones that are kind of uh, your driving force, not something like ads on a major site like BoardGameGeek. Or Brick and Mortar or LGS. Believe it or not, the LGS path hasn't really like translated into anything much. Uh, this distributors, uh, we've been cold calling them or only, I mean, the ones in Asia, they, they know me. So, I mean, it's easy for me to get in touch with them and I, I can literally just get on a plane and travel like uh, two hours to meet like Ludus Games. Uh, the owner is uh, Mr. Freddy Pan, awesome guy, nine outlets in, in Manila alone. And, uh, you know, I mean, he basically gave me a chance and there we go. We are having three demo days just, uh, this coming month. Awesome. Uh, sorry, February, March and April, I think, sorry, uh, one for each month. Cool. And um, yeah, and, uh, in Indonesia, basically, we, we met up with uh, the Animat guys, which are the distributors of Magic in Indonesia. So, you know, they have to be big if they're distributing Magic, right? So For sure. Uh, these guys are great. I mean, I actually met uh, one of the founders of Animat two years ago to pitch the game to him. And uh, he came back, you know, and uh, he basically said, okay, you know, we'll help you out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, around Asia, it's a lot easier for us. But getting into the West, right, for, for me, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult. I mean... I mean, I just got this feeling that uh, Asian game designers, I mean, who are not from Japan, have this massive disadvantage. It's like, what happened to me is, I think, a miracle. I think, I think it was a moonshot that I hit something. So, uh, I don't know, maybe someone, someone up there is helping me out. But, uh, I mean, there is a degree of luck. There's, there is the uncalculable component of this equation. I, I can't figure out what ha exactly happened. But, I mean, I would like to believe that it is a good product. Yeah, no, I think you've got something special going on. <laughs> no, let's uh, let's say you know, let us know, let the listeners know where where, where can people find MegaCorp if they want to like find out more, if they want to get a hold of some of your decks, if they want to learn more about this game. Where where do they go? Sure, sure. Uh, I can't tell you the distributor's website yet because they haven't signed on with me, but they are a Canadian-based distributor. Uh, we we can still be found on www.megacorptcg.com. That is the website. Uh, Twitter is uh, the handle is TCG as well. Facebook, same thing, TCG, facebook.com slash TCG. And of course, uh, the YouTube channel. Weirdly, YouTube doesn't have like a customized like link, but uh, if you search for TCG, you could find it relatively fast. Um, don't worry, I'll put it in the links in the uh, show notes. Right. We do have a distributor in Netherlands, but I don't think it's a shipping advantage from uh, Europe to America compared to getting it from Singapore to America. In fact, I, I believe that getting from Asia to America is probably still cheaper, believe it or not. I don't understand. This is a logistics question. Um, but uh, in time, we, we, we actually are talking to two different American distributors, but uh, we don't know the outcome yet. So those conversations tend to go on for some time. Uh, but in Nuremberg, hopefully, we might be able to cement the relationship well, with somebody in Canada. So, um, 
you know who you are. I uh, you're listening to this. Yes, <laughs> we 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 would love to basically plug you. Sounds good. Yeah. And I would love to get a hold of this game. So I can't wait till it's available in Canada. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, thank any you. Other, like softball, hardball questions you want to throw at me? You know, I, I actually cleared the entire front half of my day for you. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, is I there mean, anything I else you wanted to talk about? Is there any uh, any other questions or any or any other thoughts? Yeah, I've never been interviewed share? from Canada in my life, so this is very special for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I've I've got other questions. I've got things like, uh, how did you find your team? You know, were there any major setbacks in developing the game? There's all kinds of stuff. Now, uh, this this uh, might come as a shock, but I was actually involved with another TCG. You know, for some time. Um, I was actually uh, working as a distributor for the Force of Will game in Singapore. Really? Yes, but hang on. Okay. Uh, if you're wondering like, uh, what happened, right? We initially pitched Megacorp to a company called Anima, which is the Indonesian distributor. And uh, they counter-pitched us and said that you guys have no experience. Why don't you distribute a TCG first? And so that's how that happened. So actually me and Sean, we were working on Silent Water comic at that point of time. We, we were actually trying to monetize the comic by creating Megacorp the game at that point. So the thing is that we, we actually started working uh, in the local TCG circuit and uh, we got to know basically some of the network. But of course, it's a very close community. Some of the, uh, some of the players play multiple games. Like for example, the, the top few players of Magic the Gathering are also the top few players of like certain Bushiroad games or so also top few players of, you know, of, of Force of Will as well. So there's a lot of overlap there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for, uh, for the volunteers, uh, three of them actually found me from uh, interacting with me from, uh, from the other game. And uh, the rest basically, you know, for example, like uh, Rafael, which has recently joined us from Philippines. I mean, he, he was actually a volunteer as part of a demo team working for a distribution company. So the thing is that uh, generally, a lot of the uh, players in the competitive scene, they, 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 they travel in the same circles. So, I mean, the good part for if you're an aspiring game designer, I suspect that you need to plug yourself into this industry like bubble. You need to get inside the bubble. Got to build your network. Yeah. No, no uh, there are people that you can build from outside the network. Uh, for example, like on my back end, like the game, the game, the actual people helping me develop the game as well. Some of them have never touched a card game in their life. So you have to look at it this way. I mean, for marketing the game and driving it forward, you need industry people, the people who are basically... Uh, like what's the word for it, uh, have vested interest in the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, for getting the game from zero, you need people who have no background because they are not like uh, contaminated by like uh, prejudices and, uh, you know, like hard-coded ideals. Like for example, getting, getting uh, our design team around the fact that you can attack on the turn you come into play. That was a big one. Like, if you talk to anybody who has played any kind of competitive card game, they're all gonna say, oh, that's a retarded idea, that's terrible. But then somebody who actually did the mathematics with me went, hey, that's actually not a bad idea. It actually works out. And it's actually a better play experience because I get to play and use the card. I mean, in other card games, I get to play the card next, then it gets removed, it's like, boo. What happened to my Lord of the Pit? (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like most card games, the convention is patience. In the sense yeah. that you have to wait, you have to plan ahead, and like there's a delay on everything. And uh, your game, it seems like you've taken that away, but it yeah, still because... ends up being balanced because of the mechanics of the game anyways. Correct. I mean, like in real life business, right? If I wanted to spend $9 million on donuts, I want to spend $9 million on donuts, right? I mean, my first turn, I want to just flood money and like put 50 things onto the table and go, ha ha, I'm going to screw you up, right? 
And I, 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 I take that risk. I'm left with one million in the bank and I could just die the next turn. But you see, that's a play style that I can choose to do. Any player can choose to do. They don't need to build the entire deck in that direction. You see? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, a player that basically just wants to like, like just dig in and just protect himself can just like surround his business with stuff, cheat all his money and just like stare at the other guy. I mean, reminds you of like every other control player, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if I choose to play that way, I can. And there are disadvantages to playing that way as well. So it, it, there, there is no dominant play style. There's no one play style that's the safest. So you've been doing this thing for, you've been building this game for a long time. Was there anything that like, were there any dips in the, uh, the whole process where you're like, maybe oh, this yeah. isn't worth it. Maybe I'm just oh. going to put this to the side and, you know, move on, do something else. Yeah, there was, man. I mean, I, I, I kind of had this uh, lost faith in humanity moment because I had a friend from Japan uh, say that he was going to help me out with the game, uh, going to give me advice, be my mentor, help me publish the game. And, and the scary and crazy part is that at this one point of time, I said to him that, hey, if there's a conflict of interest, I will give you my game. And I got let go. So essentially, um, I stumbled a little bit because I was supposed, I thought I had the support of uh, somebody very high up in the industry. And uh, we thought that, you know, we could just basically combine channels, you know, like basically ride on uh, the same infrastructure, you know, and just build a bigger and better thing in a shorter period of time. Mm. And then I, I had to do this all by myself. It was very painful. That sounds so, rough. Uh, it was, that was, uh, was quite rough. I, uh, I don't know. The, those people who know what happened, know what happened. Uh, some people still have the wrong impression of what happened. Whatever, it's in the past. But uh, the thing is that, uh, the, the sad thing is that if you really want to start a game, I believe that you need to build your own infrastructure. So it's, uh, it's not something that you can uh, borrow or not something that you can like, uh, ride on. For example, uh, we're not actually published, we're self-published. Because you see, I've seen publishing deals now and most publishing deals is we'll take most of the profit, we'll basically handle all of your manufacturing costs, but we're not going to push the game as hard. See, that's the difference, you see. You become the B title in a group of titles that they're holding. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. if you publish yourself, you are your own A title and you have to make it work. Otherwise, you know, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that, that was why my, my one terrible moment, it happened basically at the uh, tail end of 2016. That was very recent, in fact. No. So um, maybe one day I'll go to Canada and we can have a beer and I can tell you more about it. But uh, well, that's, that's uh, what I'm willing to share with the public at the moment. But that's, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah. How, how did you get past that? Oh, the value of death, right? Uh, basically, um, what really started happening was uh, when players were coming back to me and go, hey, Mark, I have this rules question. And then I went, wait, you're interested? He's like, yeah. I was like, I, I don't know how this works. I was going, and then I had just had these two players. I had these two players from America. They were just emailing me, asking me rules questions. And I was going, you know what? you know what, it's, it's not over, it's not over. We, we can make this happen. So I, I just spent half an hour each day trying to teach them the game. And uh, that eventually got me enough attention to push it to Rudy, I think. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty, I was pretty miserable for a while. I mean, there, there was this huge doubt. It's like, should I just stop at the starters? Should we just keep the starters as like one self-contained game? Should we like just X the boosters, don't hire artists, because art is expensive, you know, and... Uh, mm. All these phone calls I'm making every day, you know, I, I should be, you know, 
I should be focusing on my other business. You know, I should maybe go out and sell mobile phones in the market or something. <laughs> yeah, which I've done, by the way. So, that's yeah, that's the, the fun part of being an entrepreneur, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You know, we yeah. should be doing something more, so doing, doing more work, doing more calls, more marketing. Yeah, There's always something new, too. It doesn't translate into sales all the time. But actually, can I ask you something? Sure. Yeah, what is the trading card game scene like in Canada? I, I know absolutely nothing. Uh, mainly composed of the major three, so Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, and Pokemon. Uh, Force Wheel is kind of making like a some inroads right now. There, it was. It's been like fluctuating in popularity for a little while. That's the majority of the card games being played. There's a lot of smaller ones. I think Vanguard was one of them. There's a. There've been a bunch that have been released in a couple of years, but like those are the the main uh, the main games. Is it okay? Is it LGS driven? Is are people still primarily going to local game shops? Or are they just like playing at home? kind of thing well that's always the question isn't it because like if that's something it's really hard to account for so like uh when you go to the game store and you play at an fnm or something and you play magic you see the people that are there but there's there's almost guaranteed it's kind of like an iceberg those are the people that you can see how many people are there who aren't there that come into the shop and buy booster packs and you know play casually right they don't play in tournaments the uh the estimate is that it's kind of it's probably like 10 to one or something like that, that there's lots of people playing around kitchen table stuff that you never see, or you only rarely see in the, in the shops, but they do spend the money for every person mm. who actually comes out and participates in an organized play kind of setting. So yeah, it's hard to tell. I would say that like the, uh, at least for my city, the, where I can uh, talk about uh, the Toronto area and where I am in Kitchener, it's a uh, very active. There's like, for some, it's probably one of the most highest density uh, population areas of Canada, Southern Ontario. And it is like the heart of uh, magic for Canada, basically. Wow. There are so many shops like uh, per, per block in my city and in Toronto, then like it's, it's, it's kind of a weird exception. There are, uh, just counting on fingers and toes right now, there's something like eight in my city, which is not a very large city to be uh to support eight different stores. And then there's like tons and tons of different uh, LGSs inside of Toronto. It's like a, it was a very competitive space. You know, we don't have, uh, it's like Canada is a little bit different than uh, the States, right? We're far more spread out. So the population is all in Ontario. It's all on the coasts, basically. So then we've got this huge gap in the, in the, the middle of the prairies and all that stuff. So uh, the, we don't have tournament series or tournament circuits, kind of like the way the States does with the Star City Games Opens and all that stuff. Oh, okay. So the tournaments go to the players. It's not like they have it in one big capital city like Beijing and like, you guys come or get stuff. Haha. <laughs> yeah, we, we have them mainly spread out. So like I said, it's, oh. uh, it's for us. Like, I mean, uh, spread out in the sense that three major locations. We got Montreal on the uh, East Coast. We got Vancouver on the West Coast. And we have Toronto in the center. And everyone oh. else kind of gets left out because there's just not enough people to really support anything. Whereas uh, yeah. the States, it's pretty well spread pretty well spread out there's the populations all over the place so the uh the scg opens the the major tournament series and that uh like outside of what wizards is doing is uh, uh it's all over the place right it's they go to pretty much every state every weekend has a major tournament wow okay but the major tournaments are what drives the game forward right i mean you're talking about the the big boys uh, wizards they basically hold major tournaments in order to suck all the people out of the suburbs into the city to play the game right yeah that is essentially what the grand prix do for for wizards is that uh, wherever they host them and that's people will travel you know up to like eight hours to get to those things which is 
a pretty good distance considering the size well, of the but, continent. Oh. What's the prices like? If they're traveling eight hours, it's got to be like, what, 10 grand or something? Okay, I have to interject here because I didn't have the stats during the actual conversation, but I wanted to make sure that everything was accurate and ready to go for the release of the podcast. So uh, the actual numbers for Grand Prix events in North America, price pool of $50,000, and it goes all the way down to 180th, depending on if they achieve a 3,000 player uh, attendance or not. Just wanted to add that in before we move on. Somebody like me is like, how the hell are we going to put on tournaments and put that kind of prize money down? We're, we're like really poor Asian guys. <laughs> so, well, well, that's that's the interesting thing, right? So, and like, this is another thing that we can definitely get into is that uh, you're going to work on organized play for this game at some point once it's a little oh, more Oh, yeah, we have an organized play plan. I can tell you about that. That's sure, actually sure. quite simple. So, uh, think, yeah, with, well, but with Wizards is that uh, they have their own... Uh, circuit, right? They have the Pro Tour, they have the Grand Prix, and those are basically it. And then they have the smaller, like, uh, in-store tournaments, like the, the Pro Tour qualifiers and stuff like that. So uh, they have Wizards' own uh, organized play efforts. But uh, Star City Games is the the dominant uh, LGS. And, like, I use LGS with, like, quotes because they're huge, right? They are all over the states. They, they're, they are by far the biggest uh, non-Wizards magic retailer. And Why do they, Wizards just buy those guys? I don't know. That'd be an interesting question. But I think there's uh, something to do with not being able to uh, interfere with the secondary market. Okay. There are some, okay. some rules with that regarding uh, the fact that they're creating a collectible. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but uh, Wizards will never talk about the price of a card. Like outside of the booster packs that you buy them in, they can't say, "Oh, this is a twenty dollars smuggler's copter, and now it's five bucks or something like that." They can't. They can't mention that. They can't acknowledge oh, that their cars they? have secondary why don't value. They? It's perfectly calculable. Okay, I, I, this is a bit of cross-cultural comedy here because I, I come from a place where the government tries to interfere in everything. <laughs> so it's like, so like, I mean, I got compulsory military service that if I don't go, I go to jail. For instance, <laughs> I uh, and we have like one party in power, and the same guy has been our leader for the last. You know, I don't want to talk about that on air, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia and stuff. But but uh, I mean, the thing is that okay, from my perspective, they could. I mean, from um, just using my left or right brain, which one is it? Left brain, right? Um, theoretically, if the reason why we put on our website that the metal cards are worth 100 USD value is because I'm trying to benchmark it. I'm trying to make sure that anybody that sells or buys that card understands that a lot of work has gone into that production of that card and it should be given out as a reward or extremely rare and, uh, how do I put it, hard to get item. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that... Um, it's, it's like, uh, I mean, if you look at the stock market, for instance, right? Uh, I mean, the, the prices are really driven by demand. I mean, more people want to buy something, price goes up, right? Of course. So that's organic. And uh, let's just give you another similar example. If you look at Diablo and how they actually tried to do their item exchange market, that was uh, pretty close to how the real stock market mentions, except that they could actually manipulate the price of certain things. Now, because they have enough data. So I got a feeling that wizards are not collecting enough data. The reason why I said, why don't they buy Star City Games is because if they bought Star City Games, they would have access to that data. Why don't they? Each individual packet of Magic the Gathering has a unique um, QR code. In fact, it is unique to that pack. It's not unique to that box or case. It's unique to that very, very pack. I think the, the reason behind it is to basically prevent people from uh, 
doing the black market, like selling uh, magic from one territory to another, which of course will piss off the distributors, which ruins the entire supply chain. I can understand why, why, why that is there, but how come they're not using that to basically calculate, right? We have the technology to do it now. I mean, I understand how big data works and so, so should they. You could pretty much figure out the true value of a disenchant card, which was released in revised in the 90s. And I wouldn't know how many people are buying and selling that card. I mean, I don't even need to do it at the point of sale because that's going to add on to too much load on the LGS, right? Because the LGS has enough things to worry about, right? Mm -hmm. Because Wizard controls the tournaments themselves, correct? Is that right? Sort of. Like that, that's the, uh, the interesting thing. Uh, like if you think of the Star City Games to uh, open series versus the Wizard stuff, Wizards kind of dictate, well, they dictate certain things about the way tournaments have to be run, like uh, the number of judges, the uh, the rules that you're enforcement or that you're enforcing, like that kind of stuff. But the uh, like everything else, all the venue, the prizes, the, you know, the marketing, like everything else about the tournament is uh, is up to the LGS. So mm. they, they so don't dictate everything. So they outsourcing the risk. Yes. That means basically Wizards is making the LGS pay for most of their costs. Yes. Sorry, that's what my brain is telling me. And <laughs> what my brain is also telling me is that, uh, oh shit, I figured something out. <laughs> you could do this with the deck checks. With the deck checks, you could actually use an OCR scanner. And when you do a deck check, it uploads, it doesn't need to take a picture. It just needs to identify that this card is that card from that set, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you would basically tell how many cards are in active circulation because I don't care about the card that you gave to your little brother because you, you're trying to teach him magic for the first time. I care about the card that you took into the tournament. Firstly, cards that are bought in the tournaments are more relevant because they see play. The cards that don't see play, it sucks anyway, right? Yep. And the second thing is that if people are main decking the damn card, means that uh, if they main deck or they sideboard it, I mean, there's different levels of priority. A sideboard card is probably a lower priority than the main deck card, right? And the main deck card, I could probably measure basically the, the occurrences between the block A, block B, and block C. Like how many times this guy is playing that card, particularly if the card is a reprint. So you could actually calculate the secondary market value of that card based on the tournament plays because that is why people buy that card anyway, from player to player, right? You, you're not basing the, the value of the secondary market on collectors because collectors is a little bit more of an art rather than a science. But I can calculate how much a card is worth based... I should do this on MegaCorp. Unless Wizards beats me... If they're listening to this and beat me to it first, well, power to you. But the thing is that I'm going to do this on MegaCorp. I think it's perfectly doable. I really doubt Wizards will beat you to it. No, because... Like I Wizards mean, has got more than enough to, uh, to worry about. They're kind of big and dude, large dude, and it's hard to kind of... Move, I think I'm up to something. I mean, what's a smartphone penetration in Canada? I mean, most of you guys have a smartphone or two, right? Uh, I would say, yeah, pretty much ubiquitous. It's almost everywhere. It's almost, almost everywhere, and every smartphone you guys have has a camera, right? It's not like, you know, like yep. uh, you guys are still using smartphones without cameras, right? So the thing is that everybody's already carrying the hardware. So all you need to do basically is to recognize the number of cards. We do the deck check. The judge uses his phone and deck checks the other guy. And then basically he registers all the cards in that deck into the judge phone. Judge phone basically uploads to a database, basically. So the tournament, we know the composition of every single player participating in the tournament who has received the deck check. Maybe you can even start by not deck checking everybody, by just deck checking the top eight. That's good enough. Whoever's made it to the top eight, obviously is doing something right, right? Of course. So, yeah, and the thing is that you can just basically base the secondary market calculation. You don't even need to, to do the deck checks. Oh my God, people write the deck list after the tournament is done anyway. You can calculate the secondary market value based on the occurrences by the post-tournament reports. So the simplest minimum viable product is just calculating the secondary market value 
based on the occurrences of cards in the top eight of tournaments held in Toronto, Canada, as a measure of the card value in Canada. At least in Toronto, sure. Yeah, so I mean, that's, uh, I don't know, that's my professional opinion. It can be done. No, no, let me just... Uh, let's yeah, just no, that's for it. sure. That's, that's why I'm just thinking about this, because I was actually uh, writing up notes for another episode I was going to do about uh, secondary market values and why standard is so expensive. So it's kind of funny that we actually got into this topic. Dude, they need standard, from a business standpoint, from the, 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 the brand owner standpoint, Wizards needs the secondary market to be high, because you need to have a perception of uh, exchange of value when you buy the... Basically, when... When I buy a pack of cards, I need to think I'm making money, not losing money. That, that's what drives people to crack packs or seal product. Yeah, the, Otherwise, the perceived value. Uh, let me, uh, I, I know you want to wrap this up, so let me just end on an interesting idea. What, what if the principal, for example, like me, I'm the owner of Megacorp, right? And me mm-hmm. and four or five other guys from the team. What if we decided basically to actually have the singles of the cards for sale on the brand website itself, but we, we actually give them an arbitrary value? What do you think will be the result of this? Hard to tell. Depends what their arbitrary values are. If they're less, well, I guess. No, it can't be, be less because we make it less than what the LGSs are offering. LGSs will never buy our product, right? True. So if you make a relatively difficult to get card and then we gave it an arbitrary value, for example, if, okay, let, let, let's just give you an example. Generally, the understanding is that if you crack a pack, you get a rare card, right? Mm-hmm. So a, a rare card must be equal to or more than the cost of a pack. So the expected value. So the thing is that the expected value of a pack, uh, our MSRP for Megacorp boosters will be $3.75 USD. Is that too much or is that okay? That's, that's about right for the market. Yeah, I right. think it should be still cheaper than Magic by a little bit, but uh, we still have 15 cards though. So um, we, we, we do this, uh, we do the rare at a pack price plus one. So the rare will be like $4.75 USD. So the thing is that the player can go, hmm, I could crack rares, crack packs, and try to score that rare card I wanted, and, or I can just buy it straight from the principal and pay the shipping cost. I, I think it's, 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 it, it can be worked out into a formula because the thing is that I would need to crack six or seven to get the rare which I want because I might get the rare which I don't want, right? For sure. And like the, this is something you could definitely do, but uh, if we're using magic as the analogy again, there are services like that, right? So uh, there's tcgplayer.com, there's starcitygames.com, there's Channel Fireball. There's a lot of, uh, since we're talking about like e-commerce generally, they, and we're not talking about brick and mortar game stores because they technically do this as well. But uh, you can- but, but you're not getting me, uh, Thomas. But the point I'm driving at is why do these guys even exist? They don't need to. From a completely academic point of view, from, I mean, just using my mathematical lizard brain, the, what they are doing is something that the principal could be doing themselves. Because you see, the LGS is taking a risk. The LGS is paying rent, it's paying staff, it's having infrastructure, it's engaging the community directly. Mm-hmm. And if the LGS chooses to sell online, power to them. But people who sell online without having the physical presence, why are they even getting stock? It just doesn't occur to me why they need to exist. No, you're right. You're right, because there's realistically the only need the creation of the game, like you need the, the producer of the game and you need the LGS, you need the, the community that actually produces players that play the game. There's no Correct. real need for that middle and players person. selling the players, power to you. I mean, players should sell the players, great. You know, I mean, that, that's what you should be doing. If you're a consumer of the game, we will help you. I mean, as, as, a, as the owner of a brand, I mean, I'm gonna help you enjoy the game more. You know, I mean, if you're gonna sell cards to your friends, you know, great, you know, I, I don't know. I'll try to figure something out in that respect. But I believe that maybe a different approach that can be taken is basically cutting the, uh, 
the, the guy, the, okay, this is not a middleman. The middleman's a distributor, and the distributor's doing his job. The distributor's doing a hardcore job of buying 1,000 boxes of inventory of sealed product, bringing it all the way over across the world, you know, to the other side, and distributing the LGSs. We don't need to talk about LGSs. They're doing a great job. But the guys that just do nothing but online sales, now, I think they are actually what's causing the inflation. In fact, I believe these guys are what's actually causing the LGSs to suffer. They are the direct cause of why LGSs don't have margin. I think you're right. You're, how do we prevent this? I mean, I think maybe this is a conversation for another time, but uh, that's an interesting train of thought I have right now. It's in like, if the principal could do it, people go, why was I buy from you and I can buy from Fossil Flag, or not Fossil Will, or Magic, or, or Yu-Gi-Oh! I can just buy it straight from Megacorp, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting uh, thought experiment to, uh, to explore. And I w- it does make you wonder though, right? Why wouldn't, uh, like, at this point at the stage, why wouldn't Wizards offer something like that where you could just buy any standard legal set, say like not even like stuff that's out of print, just any standard legal card direct from them for a certain price, whatever they wanted it to be. So that uh, the the calculation from a player's perspective was, oh, I can take the chance and spend the $4 or whatever it is for a booster pack. And, you know, you might get something that's worth 20, you might get something that's worth one. You know, you're rolling the dice on that one, or you can go and just get the cards that you want direct. Yeah, I just added it to my little like add to cart. And then... Uh... We deliver it to the LGS and we give the LGS something. And so the LGS says, yay, I get stuff for fulfilling. There's got to be a reason. Sense. There's got to be a reason this doesn't exist already. I think maybe they're not looking at it from a technological standpoint. I, I, I That's think That's very tech, possible. So. That's very possible. It's, uh, especially with wizards, technology has not been their forte. Uh, they are, not to, to rag on them too much, but like they've just recently upgraded their software for their tournaments. And this thing was like... Uh, I can't remember the last time. It was probably developed in the 90s. Like, it's just been rolling along. It like, looks like a spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, all you have to do is look at Moto for uh, or for Magic Online for an example of how badly Wizards has kind of handled uh, I, I their tech side. It's okay, actually. It, it's, it, it's gotten a lot better recently. But, like, it's been in development for 15 years, I think. Yeah, 15 what? years. Developed that piece of software for 15 years. What's wrong with them? Come on. I know. Right. Well, that they're not a tech company, so yeah. Like maybe this is maybe that's all that's uh, standing in their yeah. way. Interesting thing to to think about. Okay, so yeah. let's save that for another day. Perhaps we'll uh, get into that a little bit later. Yeah, I really enjoy talking to you, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I enjoy talking to you too. Do you have any closing words? Closing words. Uh, yeah, business is war. <laughs> awesome. Uh, uh, no, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, power to uh, all the um, Canadian players. I've never met any of you guys before, but uh, thanks for supporting. And uh, listen to Thomas more. Sounds good to me. Well, we're going to have to say goodbye, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. All right, I want to thank Mark Cove one more time for coming on the podcast and sharing his insights with us. This episode was packed with golden nuggets, and I definitely encourage you to check out Megacorp if you get the chance. So head over to megacorptcg.com and learn what all the fuss is about. Go to maniversesaga.com to find the show notes for this episode, including links mentioned during the show, uh, past episodes of the Maniverse podcast, and to learn advanced strategies for taking your friendly local game store to the next level. I've been your host, Tom Traplin. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.